Hello, everyone, and welcome to the October 4th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A new case by the California Court of Appeal concluded that the plaintiff attorneys in a subrogation action can settle and switch sides and defend the claim in intervention filed by the comp carrier without repercussions by the trial court. In this case, Vince Amoriki was employed by Hydro Ventures Incorporated as a plumber when he fell and injured himself at a construction project site when he descended a scaffolding staircase with uneven stair risers. A subcontractor, Scaffold Solutions, constructed the temporary scaffolding stairs for the project where the injury occurred. Murecki received nearly $237,000 in workers' compensation benefits that were paid by Starstone National Insurance Company. Murecki, while represented by the firm of Boxer and Gerson LLP, filed a personal injury action against third-party defendants, including Scaffold. Marecki eventually settled the tort case, and as part of the settlement, Marecki agreed to assume the defense of scaffold for claims by any parties, including workers' compensation insurers, such as Starstone, and pay any resulting judgment. Starstone National Insurance Company intervened in the case, seeking reimbursement from the defendants for the amount of benefits it paid to Mr. Marecki. The Boxer-Gerson firm then switched sides and became associated co-counsel for Scaffold and filed an answer to Starstone's complaint and intervention. At that point, Starstone moved to disqualify Scaffold's attorneys on the ground that they created a conflict of interest by representing Marecki in the underlying action against Scaffold, obtaining a settlement of that action, and then assuming the defense of scaffold to Starstone's claims and intervention. But the trial court denied the disqualification motion and held Starstone had no standing to seek the disqualification of counsel. The California Court of Appeal affirmed the ruling in the unpublished case of Marecki versus Scaffold Solutions, Incorporated. Starstone argued that by Aligning themselves with Scaffold, Boxer Gerson could use intimate case knowledge and possibly privileged information in an attempt to defeat Starstone's recovery claim and thus keep settlement funds and achieve a double recovery specifically denounced by the legislature. But even though a trial court's authority to disqualify an attorney derives from the power inherent in every court, a standing requirement is implicit in disqualification motions. A party moving to disqualify counsel must have a legally cognizable interest that would be harmed by the attorney's conflict of interest. And courts have found an attorney-client relationship between the complaining party and the attorney sought to be disqualified is a prerequisite to seeking disqualification. However, other courts have slightly broadened the scope of that general rule, holding that a non-client may bring a disqualification motion based on attorney's breach of duty of confidentiality owed to the non-client. However, this minority view does not alter well-established standing requirements, that is, harm, 
arising from a legally cognizable interest, which is concrete and particularized, not hypothetical. In this case, Starstone appears to propose another rule that standing requires only that the moving party establish harm by the continued participation of counsel. A review of the 1971 amendments to the Labor Code provisions regarding subrogation done by the Court of Appeals demonstrates that it does not necessarily follow that the legal interests of the employee and employer must be aligned, such that the employee is charged with a duty to safeguard the employer's right to sue a third party. Courts have refuted the notion that in the workers' compensation subrogation context, an employee is akin to trustee, fiduciary, or legal representative. In touting the sanctity of the employer-employee relationship, Starstone overstates the nature of that relationship. Santa Monica, California-based Activision, the maker of the computer games Candy Crush, Call of Duty, Overwatch, and World of Warcraft, has settled its employee discrimination claim with the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. This company is a major Southern California employer with about 9,500 employees. The EEOC alleged that Activision failed to take effective action after employees complained about sexual harassment, discriminated against employees who were pregnant, and retaliated against employees who spoke out, including firing them. As part of the settlement, Activision said it would create an $18 million fund to compensate people who were harassed or discriminated against. Money left over would go to charities for women in the video game industry or other gender gender equity measures. It will also upgrade its policies and training on harassment and discrimination and hire an independent consultant to oversee its compliance with the EEOC's conditions. The agreement is subject to court approval and will be in effect for three years. But critics of the settlement say that the fund for affected employees is minuscule when compared to the company's $8.1 billion annual revenue last year. The EEOC's case was just the latest legal development for the company, which is currently embroiled in several separate ongoing legal battles that have cropped up over this summer. The California Department of Fair Employment and Housing, which is California's civil rights agency, sued the company last July, alleging that the company has a, and I'm going to quote, frat boy, end quote, workplace culture. The agency called Activision a breeding ground for harassing, harassment and discrimination in which women are subject to regular sexual advances by often high-ranking men who largely go unpunished. Many employees spoke out in support of the claims. Over 2,000 of them signed an open letter calling for action by the company, and a walkout protest was staged on July 28. And a shareholder has filed suit saying Activision misled investors about the severity of its labor problem and associated legal risks. The Securities and Exchange Commission is investigating Activision's disclosures to its investors. 
and its president, J. Allen Brack, resigned from the company in early August. The California company has said it is cooperating with various regulators and working to resolve workplace complaints. It has recently refreshed its Human Resources Department and hired a new chief people officer from Disney. And now our crime report. A very bizarre employee premium fraud conviction appeal has now gone on for 18 years and continues to be reviewed by the Court of Appeal. The case goes back to 2003 when the defendants Jose Luis Alvarez and Kim Marug, who at the time was known as Kim Alvarez, his wife, pled guilty to charges that they defrauded the state compensation insurance fund by payroll fraud. At the time, Alvarez and Marug were husband and wife and operated Alvarez Construction Company together. Some of the workers were paid in cash by an intermediary, and as a result, the state fund was not paid workers' compensation premium as they should have been. Marug later claimed that although she was not guilty of the charges and insisted on moving forward to trial, she nonetheless pled guilty in December 2003 because the plea agreement sounded like a sound financial decision at the time. But Marug and Alvarez separated in February 2003 and began a dissolution of marriage proceeding in 2004. She then married the prosecutor in her criminal case, after she and the prosecutor began a personal relationship at some undisclosed date. The prosecutor died in 2013, while they were still married. Rugg testified that she had since learned that at the time she pled guilty in 2003, her criminal defense counsel was colluding with Jose Luis Alvarez's family law attorney, and her criminal conviction had an adverse effect on her community property rights. Thus, in January 2007, Baruch started her court battle and filed what she called a petition for expungement of the conviction, which was taken off calendar and not resolved by the Superior Court. A couple years later, in November 2009, Marug discovered another woman who previously had been prosecuted by the same deputy district attorney and with whom the prosecutor later engaged in a romantic relationship had almost an identical situation to hers. This other woman complained to the district attorney's office, and the office commenced an internal affairs investigation of the prosecutor. During the investigation, Baruch learned that the prosecutor had engaged in personal and romantic relationships with other defendants he had prosecuted, as well as one of the principal witnesses, the state fund investigator, whom the prosecutor had represented to the grand jury in May 2002, as, his, as in his effort to indict her. After the investigation in 2011, the Superior Court ruled in favor of this other woman, finding in her case that there have been substantial irregularities in the prosecution of the case, of which the court was unaware until this petition, and it undermines the lawfulness of her conviction. 
So in 2011, at Drug's request, a prosecuting district attorney, who by this time was Marug's husband, provided Marug with a declaration that she submitted to the State Bar of California as part of a complaint she filed against the defense attorney who represented her at the time she pled guilty and was sentenced in 2003. Her husband, the prosecutor, <clears throat> testified that as early as 2002, he knew that Marug was not the guilty party. A year later, Marug wrote a letter to the district attorney asking that the people stipulate to allow Marug to withdraw her plea, which the people declined to do. After gaining more information in 2015 regarding what Marug considered to be criminal behavior of one of the state fund investigators who testified before the grand jury in May 2002, Marug requested and obtained copies of all of the state's fund's records from its investigation into the activities of Alvarez Construction. She received the initial documents in July 2015 and retained a forensic accountant firm in November to help her sort out the documents. Then in 2016, using all this evidence, Marug filed petitions for writs of error quorum nobis and section 1473.7 of the Penal Code motions to vacate her convictions. Much of Marug's testimony attempts to impeach evidence presented to the grand jury in May 2002. Marug denied portions of the witness's grand jury testimony and presented evidence that she contended contradicted grand jury evidence and identified facts that she believed discredited the grand jury witnesses. Based on what she found, Marouk testified that her criminal defense attorney completely failed to identify and present evidence that exonerated her, as well as failed to challenge by way of motions false evidence that was presented to the grand jury and challenge the prosecutor's failure to present exonerating evidence to the grand jury. The trial court denied the requested relief. So, in 2018, the Court of Appeal intervened and gave her a second chance in the 2018 unpublished case of People v. Marug 1. In that case, since the trial court procedurally failed to hold a hearing as statutorily required, and timely requested by Marug before ruling on, mo on the motion, they were ordered to do so in a subsequent hearing. Thus, the case was remanded in 2018 for that purpose. Subsequently, however, the Superior Court made procedural errors in resolving her claims even after her successful appeal. The case was then again remanded back to the trial court with a second request by the Court of Appeal to simply hold an evidentiary hearing and specify a basis for its ruling in this new 2021 unpublished case of People v. Marug 2. We'll see what happens with this one. Car wash owners face premium fraud charges. The two are 64-year-old Bizad Bandari, who lives in Pacific Palisades, and 67-year-old Sam Siam, who lives in Thousand Oaks, and they appeared in the Tulare County Superior Court answering to nine counts each of felony insurance fraud after allegedly underreporting more than $3.6 million in employee payroll 
as part of a scheme to fraudulently reduce their workers' compensation premium. Bandari was the chief financial officer of Water Drops Express Car Wash, and Siam was the company's chief executive officer. They were identified as shareholders and managing partners in a chain of car washes operated from their corporate office in Woodland Hills, with car wash locations spanning across three counties, Tulare, Kings, and Ventura. And they were organized under multiple corporate entity names. There was a tip filed by the state fund with the Department of Insurance that claimed that Bandari and CM manipulated employee payroll records. A discrepancy of more than $3.6 million was discovered when the detectives compared employee payroll records submitted to the insurance companies against the employee wages reported to the Employment Development Department. By this fraud, Waterdrop's express car wash avoided paying nearly $370,000 in premiums owed to two separate insurance companies. Bandari and CM are scheduled to appear in court again on December 12. The Tulare County District Attorney's Office is prosecuting this case. A Southern California woman was sentenced for her role in a multi-million dollar Medicare fraud scheme. 51-year-old Stephanie Hirsch, who lives in Los Angeles, was sentenced to three years of probation and also ordered to pay a fine of $2,500 following her guilty plea. Hirsch sold access to a Medicare eligibility tool that allowed two people, Juan C. Perez Budirago and Nathan Laparal, to improperly access patients' detailed personal demographic, medical, and insurance information. At the time, she owned L Medical Incorporated, a Medicare-enrolled wheelchair and scooter repair company that qualified for access to a healthcare clearinghouse that contains these records of personal medical and insurance information. Hirsch improperly gave Perez, Butigaro, and Laparo access to that clearinghouse using Hirsch's credentials and charged them money for that illegal access. Laparal accessed the personal and medical data of more than 350,000 patients, and Perez Butigrago's credentials were used for 150,000 patients. The two pleaded guilty to federal health care crimes in October 2020 and January 2021, respectively. And in regulatory news, this year, the California legislature passed SB 788 and sent the bill to Governor Newsom for signature. However, Governor Newsom vetoed this bill. The bill would have added language to Labor Code Section 4663, which is one of the permanent disability apportionment statutes. It would have limited consideration of race, religious creed, color, national origin, gender, marital status, sex, sexual identity, or sexual orientation in apportionment of permanent disability. The source of this bill was the California Applicants' Attorneys Association. Assembly amendments in the legislative process removed genetic characteristics and age as factors that would be prohibited in apportionment cases. 
Most of the legislative effort to limit apportionment over the last few years has been in response to case law. Newsom's veto message said that ongoing efforts by the Division of Workers' Compensation to implement mandatory continuing education of medical legal evaluators related to current anti-bias is better suited to achieve the intent of this bill. On the recurrent legislative issue, Newsom followed vetoes by former Governor Brown on several apportionment bills passed by the legislature in several years past. For example, back in 2018, Governor Brown vetoed AB 479. That bill would have set limits to apportionment of permanent disability in cases involving breast cancer. Brown's veto message noted that it was similar to three previous messages that had been vetoed, AB 570 in 2017, AB 1643 in 2016, and AB 305 in 2015. Brown's veto message back then said that the proposed law would result in an even more complex workers' comp system, which would ultimately burden injured workers seeking quick resolution to their claims. The California Insurance Guarantee Association, also known as SEGA, was credited, created by legislation in 1969 that makes payments to policyholders of property, casualty, workers' compensation, and miscellaneous insurers when the member insurance company becomes insolvent and is unable to pay. It is a statutory entity that depends on establishing legislation for its existence and for a definition of the scope of its powers, duties, and protections. SEGA is funded by premium surcharges upon applicable lines of insurance, and those surcharges are limited by statute to a maximum of 2% of premium. But in 2003, a new statute provided express authority for SEGA to issue up to $1.5 billion in bonds to fund workers' compensation claim payments for injured workers of insolvent insurers. At the time, SEGA had assumed responsibility for paying covered claims of 27 insolvent workers' compensation insurance companies. Back then, the legislature placed a sunset provision on the original bonding authority and has extended the date on its expiration on four separate occasions. And again this year, the California legislature has passed and Governor Newsom has just signed AB 1541, a fifth extension of this bonding authority. SEGA is now authorized to issue bonds as needed until January 1, 2026. The CWCI published a new study that finds IMR volume continued to decline in 2021. The number of IMRs hit a record low in the first half of the year, as statewide unemployment remained stubbornly high and non-COVID job injury claims stayed below pre-pandemic levels. And efforts to reduce prescription drug disputes appear to be paying off. IMR doctors upheld the UR physician's modification or denial of the service in 91.2% of the IMRs in the first half of 2021, 
which is up slightly from the 88.4% uphold rate in 2019. Disputes over prescription drug requests continued to account for the largest share of the IMR decisions, but that percentage has declined from nearly half of all IMR disputes prior to the state's adoption of opioid and chronic pain treatment guidelines at the end of 2017, and the implementation of the medical treatment utilization schedule prescription drug formulary in January 2018. Even with those guidelines and the formulary, opioids still account for 25.8% of the 2020 prescription drug IMRs, more than any other category of drug, though that percentage is now down from 2018. While pharmaceutical requests have represented a dwindling share of the IMR since 2018, requests for physical therapy, injections, and durable medical equipment have accounted for an increasing share. As in the past, a small number of physicians account for a disproportionate share of the disputed medical service requests that went through IMR this year. 10% of physicians accounted for 82.2% of the disputed service requests, while the top 1%, 83 providers, accounted for 39.3%. The WCIRB, WCIRB has released its quarterly experience report, an update on California's statewide insurer experience valued as of June 20th, June 30th, 2021. Written premium for 2020 is $1.9 billion, or 12% below that for 2019, and it is the lowest since 2012. But the WCIRB estimates modest growth in written premium for the full calendar year of 2021 compared to 2020. The average charge rate for the first half of 2021 is 5% below that of 2020 and is the lowest in decades. The projected loss ratio for 2020, including COVID claims, is five points above that for 2019. And the combined ratio for 2020, including COVID claims, is seven points higher than 2019 and 24 points higher than the low point in 2016. Excluding COVID-19 claims, the projected combined ratio for 2020 is 98%, which is more comparable to the 2019 ratio. Early estimates for 2021 claim frequency show it is significantly above the frequency for the first half of 2020 and about 5% above the first half of 2019 and the number of indemnity and medical-only claims continued to grow in the second quarter of 2020 as the economy is reopening. Pharmaceutical costs per claim increased in 2020 and the first quarter of 2021, but they remain well below pre-2019 levels. The full report is available on the research section of the WCIRB website. And in other news, according to a new report published by the Hoover Institute, 
the pace of California companies moving their headquarters out of California is quickening. The paper provided by site selection consultant Jovi Ranich and Lee O'Hanahan, a UCLA economics professor and senior, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, provides the most detailed and comprehensive data on relocations of California business headquarters between 2018 and 2021. It documents that these headquarter exits have more than doubled in 2021. In the first half of 2021, 74 companies moved their headquarters out of California for a monthly average then of 12.3. In all of 2020, 62 companies took their headquarters out of the Golden State for a monthly average of only 5.2, while 78, or a monthly average of 6.5, did so in 2019. Then back in 2018, only 58 companies moved their headquarters out of California, or then a monthly average of 4.8. That means California lost a total of 272 headquarters companies between January 1, 2018 and June 30th of 2021. And these figures may understate the actual departures, since small businesses leaving the state often go unnoticed. The report authors cite familiar reasons for the headquarters leaving California, taxes, regulations, and high costs tied to labor litigation, energy, and utility costs. California, with 395,000 pages of regulations, is the most highly regulated state in the country. The challenges that businesses have to comply with these regulations are compounded when considering that businesses must also, must also deal with state agencies, boards, and commissions, and the state has 518 of these entities. And businesses have long been concerned with California's inordinately high workers' compensation costs. Table 12 of the report shows California to be the third highest out of 50 states analyzed in 2020 workers' compensation costs. And local reports show the exit is continuing, if not accelerating, after the Hoover Institute report last week to start with high tech, uh, two startup comp- high-tech companies, Brex said it has joined Coinbase in giving up its San Francisco headquarters. The two companies have embraced a no-headquarters model. And this week so far, the Homelight CEO said the property technology company had moved its San Francisco headquarters to Scottsdale, Arizona. And back on August 24th, Flexible Funding said it moved its headquarters from San Francisco to Fort Worth, Texas, where much of the company's future hiring will now occur. The company said it will maintain its San Francisco office, but the executive team will be based in Texas. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. 
And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manukian, Langevin. Thanks for joining us again, and please drop by next week for more news. 